Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times and welcome to a new season of our podcast where we talk to travelers and travel writers about their work and what it's like to live a life on the road. So I'm really excited to introduce you to B.A. Van Sees. He is a travel writer and photojournalist. His work has been on the front page of the New York Times and exhibited across the United States. He joins us from his home in New York whilst I was interviewing him from my erstwhile dwelling in Budapest, Hungary. Enjoy the conversation. You just mentioned quite an interesting uh, bit of a teaser, which is that you do quite a bit of work for the U.S. Coast Guard. What, what kind of things do you do with them? Yeah, so I so I have sort of a small part-time gig. It's, it's, it's probably the least of the things I do, but I actually do some photography work for the U.S. Coast Guard from time to time. So I had been, uh, I had been in the Army in a previous life, and... Uh, came to sort of just know the folks at the Coast Guard through that uh, years ago. And uh, I do a bunch of uh, photography work. I travel and I'll do stories from time to time on different projects they're doing, different, uh, this, you know, the Coast Guard is, uh, for the U.S. standards, is fairly benign. So they do a lot of sort of interesting things, a lot of just color pieces. I got to go and hang out uh, this past summer flying in helicopters, going out on some of the ships, just, you know, sort of, guard public events memorial day july 4th that kind of stuff it's nothing too nothing too serious i'm a, i'm the last guy you want in charge of national defense i'm a bit of a pushover but uh <laughs> it's it's definitely it's 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 fun and interesting work from time to time this kind of sounds about I, I don't want to use this word pejoratively but i guess kind of propagandistic like you're, you're telling a story about them in a way that makes them look good well, so that's uh, propagandist is a very big and, and, and somewhat salacious word for what it actually Indeed, is. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, it, it's probably not the correct word to use. You know, it's uh, what I do is they, they call it public affairs. So basically, it's it's about showing what's going on to the public. It's it's what it sounds like. It is not about presenting the the best image. It is not about presenting a uh, a tailor made idea of what they do. If the Coast Guard is not really, they don't have that problem to begin with because you know they they scrub ducks and save lives, so it's a it's a good message to start with from the from the start. But um, the thing about what they do is, or I guess what they have public affairs personnel do as they, as it occurs, is in presenting the truth as it is. Uh, the Coast Guard is extremely good about if something goes wrong and things go wrong. It's a human organization made of human, hum, moving human parts. When things go wrong, they, they do a very, very good job of talking about it, frankly. Uh, it's not necessarily, at least with the Coast Guard, I can't speak to anybody else, but with the Coast Guard, it's about just talking about what they're doing in a, uh, in a very real way. The, there's there's a, uh, I think, a legal and also a, uh, a moral responsibility to talk about what is being done in the public image, with public funds, with personnel who are uh, ostensibly there to serve the public. So it's, it's a little bit different. I think if you're talking about folks who have a, um, who have a, a different mission set, it might be a bit of a different discussion. But for the Coast Guard, it's, it's really, it's, it's very, very benevolent. So it's, it's, it's very different vibe. I totally get what you mean, and you're right. It's such a loaded word, uh, P-word. I used to, I used to it's an in, incredibly loaded word, yeah. I, I used to live in China, <laughs> and um, I, I, will, I remember walking by a building somewhere. I can't remember if it was in Shanghai or Beijing, and it said written on it, something like Department of Propaganda. And I, I learned that oh, yeah. they don't really distinguish between public relations and propaganda in, in, in Chinese. And that's kind of made me think for a second like uh, about how we do 
I, you know, it's interesting. I spent, uh, I guess it was a couple summers ago. I did more, more, more than a couple now. I did a story with the Cuban National Circus. I traveled around with them a little bit. I spent a few weeks down in Cuba with the circus. And the Cuban government, from the minute I landed at the airport, they had a person from the Department of Propaganda literally followed me around uh, to make sure that I did not present the uh, the Cuban National Circus, which is as charming a thing as you'd think it'd be, uh, in a bad light. So I, they had to literally had to get permissions from the government, had to have somebody kind of with me at all times. There were people who were staying in the hotel that I was at. There was one day I had a uh, I had sort of a interesting experience. I'd had what at the time was an, an ex-girlfriend who had been born in Cuba, had come over in the boat lift, hadn't seen her father since she left as a little girl, three or four years old. And I, I pinged her and I said, hey, I'm going to be in Havana. Let me stop in and visit on him. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll chat with him. I'll bring him any message you'd like, which is hard to do back and forth. I'll, I'll make some pictures of him, you know, and I'll bring him back to you. And, uh, and she was tickled to have me do that. And so I went down uh, and I, I found this guy, and I went to visit him at his house in sort of a regular neighborhood in Havana. And even for that, I had this person from the propaganda department uh, come and uh, follow me to the house, sit outside the house, and then question me when I left. Well, what'd you talk about? You know, it's it, it's an unsettling thing, and I think there are uh, a lot of countries where that is the relationship between sort of news and government. I think there are folks right now who wish it was the case here in the States and in other countries, and thankfully it isn't yet at least. So it is a, it is a troubling thing, and it's, it's a big word, but it might not necessarily be for, in some, certain, uh, some circumstances, the wrong one to choose. No, I, I totally get where you're coming from. It's really interesting that we got, um, via the sort of segue of that word, from the United States Coast Guard uh, to, to the Cuban yeah. National... <laughs> To the Cuban National Circus, and we actually connected because of a, a wonderful article you wrote uh, for Intrepid Times, of course, including your photography about uh, about Kosovo. And you were sent yeah. there to was it to test out a new type of film? It was to test film. Yeah. So I do uh, I do some work with the Lomography company. You know, they make film, they make cameras. More often than not, when they have a new camera that's rolling out, when they have a new film that's rolling out, they'll. Uh, They'll ask me to to test it, you know, run a few rolls through a camera, or or they'll send me literally the prototype they're coming up with, and they'll say, you know, give me your give me your thoughts, do a project, whatever you want to do on it, and and give us your honest thoughts about it, and um, and I will do that, and I'll, I'll come back and I'll say, I think this thing is wonderful, I think this thing could use some work, I think this thing is outright junk, and you should never ever let the public see it, etc. Uh, and so I ended up in Kosovo just because they had released this new film called uh, Berlin Kino which is modeled after sort of 1950s uh, film stock that there was used uh, for cinematic projects back in, uh, back in sort of the Cold War era. And they, uh, they sent me this film and they said, uh, do a project with it. And I said, well, every project that I, I end up doing for you, it's, it usually ends up being a state sort of thing. And I had, uh, I had had a, I have a friend who had just kind of blown up her life. She had moved to Serbia. She had left her job, her apartment, and her boyfriend behind in New York and just moved moved off to Belgrade and just a couple weeks before. And I, I pinged her and I said, hey, I would be really interested in going to Kosovo to do a story using this film just because we have this sort of, especially in the West, this sort of retro idea of Kosovo, of Eastern Europe, uh, as this weird mixture of grit and romanticism that I think would be interesting. Would you want to come and join me and we'll go tooling around for a week 
uh, at the behest of the Lomography Company to go and do a story about Kosovo. And uh, she has no sense of responsibility and said, yes, let's go do it. And I think about two weeks later, I was putting my feet in Kosovo. It was that fast quick. So is this you know, the, the kind of the life that you live as a photographer? One week you're, you're out on a boat or a helicopter with the Coast Guard. The next you're uh, dealing with propagandists from the Cuban National Circus. A week later you're off to Kosovo. Is that a, a, the rhythm? Yes. It's, it, it is absolutely the rhythm. It is, um, it, I've actually had what's in, an incredibly sedate year for me this year because I've, um, I've been having my life essentially taken over by the release of a book Five museum exhibitions, a bunch of other work, and ramping up a new big three-year project. So I haven't done much travel this year. Uh, that said, this year I've still gone. I'll still have gone to uh, nine countries, and I'm teaching a photo workshop in Mongolia next week. Prior to this, this crazy wow. year that I uh, that I'm having right now, it was pretty routine for me to be out of country 35 to 40 weeks a year, uh, for the good and the bad of it. And there's very good goods and very bad bads. So what are the what are the bad bads? Not to dwell on it, but I'm just got intrigued by it because it all sounds so glamorous and exciting. It's well, okay. So anything you do, if you're doing it long enough, becomes a job. Uh, but that being said, uh, it is. There are moments when you miss the creature comforts of home, of missing your bed, of missing certain things. But it's it is ruinous on interpersonal relationships. Uh, I have, you know, I, I've had entire romantic relationships with, with wonderful women who were stupid enough to see me that just went sideways because of the fact that I was, you know, upside down with my hair on fire in Pongo Pongo. Uh, and I've, I have a, uh, a 72 year old father who I don't see probably as much as I should because I'm traveling around the world and gallivanting and that sort of thing. So there, there's that very negative downside. The very positive upside is that you get to live many, many lives in one lifetime, which is certainly uh, an incredible gift. And was that the drive that made you want to uh, become a photographer? I mean, how did this journey come yes. begin for you? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly restless. I always have been. I, was, uh, I inherited restlessness from a restless mother, and, uh, and I, just, I, I have always been uh, driven by this, this sense that you, uh, you know, there's a, there's a I, I live a life of poetry and there's a, a wonderful line from the poet Mary Oliver that you, you only get a one and precious life. When I was a, when I was 14 years old, my mother died and I was given a gift by it. Actually, the, 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 the knowledge very early on that most of us only get very late that you get only one life and it's very precious and you get to, you have to do with what you can while you can. And, and, um, as soon as I could start moving and traveling, I did. I, when I was in college, I started traveling around a lot. I was, I was working for an American newspaper at the time, Newsday, and the time that I didn't have to, uh, occupied by going and doing sort of local beat stories for Newsday, I would spend running around and doing things. I spent uh, a few months uh, in the Middle East, started traveling around on my own sort of projects, started getting assignments here and there, and it just kind of ramped up from there. And uh, it, it is incredibly important, I think, to any life to get as much out of it as you can. And for me, it's experience. I, I'm driven by the idea that everyone you meet has something to teach you and everywhere you go has something to teach you. And you need to move and you need to do things. You need to, you need to go to those places. You need to meet those people. You need to see those things and experience them. And unless you're willing to get out and go and do it, you're never going to get there. 
and you're, you're not going to get what you can out of the, the, you know, the one precious life that you get to live. Sorry for dropping poetry on you at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I guess it's your tea time, so I can't, you know, no, 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 I'm, I'm more feel too a, sorry. I'm, I'm more than accustomed to it. And I want to talk about poetry uh, in, in connection with your book as well, because mm-hmm. you, you mentioned sure. your, uh, your, your family and the sort of restlessness that you inherited. And I read somewhere when I was reading up on your book that uh, you're actually a descendant mm-hmm. uh, in some way of, of Walt Whitman himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm related to him. So he, on my, on my dad's side way back, it's, it's, it's 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 my publicist's I think favorite thing in the world. Uh, it's yeah, especially he, he turned out he well had he lived he would have turned two hundred this year. Yeah, he's um, I'm a descendant of a sister, uh, but he, you know he, he's he didn't have any children. He was a gay man, uh, so he, he claimed to have in the bravado of the 19th century, but he he did not. Uh, he. Uh, he yeah, he. I have a, a family legacy to him, but he was also born two hundred years ago. It's not like you know we hang out. <laughs> He's right, never come yeah. to any of my parties. I have, I have his face a little bit, some of his stuff a little bit, but uh, I don't until I sort of was forced to sort of be be contemplative about it this year because of the project. It was never a very uh, let's say it wasn't the the tightest plucked of my heartstrings. Right. But yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. So, I mean, I grew up in, in New Zealand, so a long way from America, and Whitman wasn't someone that we were mm-hmm. taught. I kind of discovered him myself when I was already mm-hmm. uh, an, an adult. And because of that, his work had a lot of meaning to me. But I imagine as an American, he's taught, is, he, is he taught in schools to every, to every kid? He is. And it's actually, it's, it's pretty interesting to me because I've, I've come to know him much more because of this project. I was never a big Whitman fan uh, when I was growing up. Uh, the the line I always sort of give as a throwaway uh, is that I've always loved poetry in spite of and not because of him. Okay. The folks who got me into poetry, which happily I've actually gotten to sort of meet and know because of this project, uh, were much more contemporary. Uh, were sort of uh, related to him in the way that most American poets are related to him, but uh, were were much more relevant to what I felt is my, my contemporary American life. That being said, I've spent the last three, almost four years now of my life living very much among uh, or inside of a world of poets. And the influence that they have on him and the meaning that they have to him is really profound. And it, it in a certain way, it can't be overstated because I think in a certain way, he is uh, he he is built on nostalgia and the nostalgia that that, that and the value that nostalgia has in, in anyone's life, which is that people apply nostalgia to whatever value set or interest set that they have. You know, he, he was a, a deeply uh, flawed person, uh, but he means something to a lot of people. And the, the thing that I sort of learned from these three years of poets is that, you know, if you have a, a, a poet who is a, a, a young gay man or young lesbian woman, he has a very distinct value because of his sexuality. And if you, um, if you talk to somebody who's African-American, for instance, they'll, they, they feel a very strong draw to him because of his, 
deeply nuanced and, and, and deeply uncomfortable, but, but still very present views on, on, on abolitionism and, and what he thought about you know, African-Americans being freed. And uh, you, you can take uh, all sorts of different people who live in that legacy and they feel uh, a much more profound kinship to him than I, a person who has his DNA, perhaps actually feels. He is very much taught in schools in the sense that he's something that I think, you know, every kid who's in the 10th grade has to go and read Leaves of Grass in the same way they have to go and read Emerson and Thoreau and Dickinson and, and other people. And they go, oh, that's this boring thing I got to get through. And OK, that's done. Now I can move on with my life and go work at a tractor dealership. But uh, for the poets, he he does act as a foundation on which I think they they build a lot of their subsequent readings and work in life, either in embrace of or rejection of him. Then, then let's talk about the, the book that is described um, in, in some ways as an homage to, to Whitman, Children of Grass, a portrait yeah. of American poetry. So that's, Amazon is telling me that's coming out in about 20 days. Is that correct? It, it comes out on September 24th. The books actually exist and are at bookstores. I... I am not expert in the vagaries of how books are produced. It's actually been a, a, been a tremendous uh, learning experience to me. Uh, it's the, again, publicist's favorite fact isn't about being about Whitman. Uh, I I personally don't necessarily phrase it as such. Okay. Does he live in the pages? Oh yeah, he absolutely does. Um, do I view it as being a census and a sort of an interdisciplinary creation between eighty American poets. Actually, I shot eighty-six in the end. Eighty-six American poets. Uh, and me trying to create sort of this visual anthology and sort of create um, create a secondary set of works uh, that that uses the actual poets within the tone of the work that they made. So I view it as being a more contemporary thing. Is it related to Whitman? Absolutely, sure it is. I'm related to Whitman literally. They're related to Whitman uh, in a much more metaphorical, but perhaps more more real and tangible sense, if you ask me. So yeah, it's related to them, but it's it, it related to him. But it's 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 really much more about these these contemporary poets and sort of creating something uh, in unison or, or or perhaps at least symbiosis with them. Okay, um, one of the uh, exhibitions of yours that I, I do want to talk about, and this was quite a big thing in the New York Times, uh, is the mm -hmm. Witness installation at the yeah. Museum of Jewish Heritage. Mm hmm. So what would you like to know about it? Well, first of all, how did that come about? Because I'm quite fascinated by, um, I mean, do you just wake up one morning and decide, I'm, I want to pho photograph Holocaust survivors today? Or does this arrive out of uh, conversation? So, with that one, it was actually sort of a, it was a strange march in progress. I had done a whole bunch of gallery exhibitions when I was a, a younger man, around, around 2002, 2003. And I really, it's funny, at the time, I really didn't like doing gallery exhibitions, and I stopped doing them completely for a long time. I didn't have the patience for them. Uh, patience being a skill you really only learn with age. And um, I, at the time, had been working for The Village Voice, the a, a absolutely wonderful sort of uh, alternative publication uh, here in New York that has, has now, unfortunately, since essentially gone defunct. And I had pitched my editor at the time. I said, uh, listen, Tatiana, I, I have this idea for a project I would, uh, I'd really be interested in finding a bunch of New York's Holocaust survivors, of which there's, there's a few, but a, a dwindling number because it happened 80 years ago, doing some portraits of them and telling some stories, write it up as a big, long-form piece. 
uh, and just make some, some some very simple portraits. I normally do these sort of big conceptual things. I want to be very simple and very elegant. A lot of these folks, I bet, are going to you know carry roadmaps of the world on their faces. Just let us show that. And she said, absolutely. That sounds great. Uh, I reached out to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, and I said, I don't really know how to locate some of these people. The Museum of Jewish Heritage is ostensibly a museum that just talks about the Jewish experience, but is one of the world's foremost museums about specifically the, the Shoah. And they had, and they said, uh, yeah, let's see what we can do. And they wrangled up for me uh, a whole lot of people who had gone through this terrible experience. And I knew I wanted the portraits to be black and white. I knew that they wanted them to be very simple. And I started shooting them as a story for the village voice. The village voice uh, essentially made the announcement that they were going to go out of business through essentially just poor management by the, their new owners uh, on, I think, a Monday. And on the Tuesday, the day after, I think it was literally that quickly, um, I got a call from the, the chairman of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And he said, you know, I, I, we've been looking at these portraits that you're doing, and we'd be interested in doing an exhibition of them. We think that they're they're that just be an interesting storytelling device. They'd be engaging to viewers. They can see that this thing that most people view as being ancient history is still very much alive, you know. And I said, well, you know, funny thing, the people who I was going to be doing the story for went out of business yesterday. So yeah, I think it's yours if you want it. That's and they were great with it. They were, yeah, it was it was it was it was really just well timed, but also. The truth of it is, uh, it's going to sound like we're talking about propaganda for, but it's not. Uh, the Museum of Jewish Heritage doing that show 15 years after I'd done my last exhibition before it made me love doing exhibitions again. They did it really professionally. They did it really well. They were really curious and contemplative. They were really intelligent about the way they did it. The way they did it itself is is, is phenomenal. They they made these big 13-foot, 17-foot uh, prints and, and actually literally papered their, their, their windows with them. They're still up now, as, as far as I know. It's been two years now. And uh, it, was, it was really – you always hear people say this when they're accepting big awards, and you always think that it's nonsense. But it was both magnificent and humbling at the same time because you know, they, they put up this, this work that I had done, which was – deeply emotionally draining, unbelievably emotionally draining. But the moment that it passes out of your hands, it sort of no longer becomes yours. And when I went to the, the opening exhibition, I, I kept helping, I couldn't help but think really that, that I had done this work and it had been just absolutely emotionally exhausting, really trying. And they put my name on everything, but the story really wasn't about me. It was about the subjects, these people who'd gone through this thing, which was infinitely more exhausting and infinitely more trying and infinitely more difficult. And just sort of talking about, well, where where is the the story then? What is it actually about? Is it about the person who makes it or is it about the person who is portrayed in it? And it, it's that has led to everything that's followed. I, I, I do nothing but sort of people-driven stories. And you can see sort of the effect that that story, the product that did the, the MGH had even on what I was doing with the poets, the products that I have ramping up right now, because it's got to be just as much about the subjects as this is about the the bravado, the ego, and the imago of the person who is making it, in this case is me. 
really interesting to hear how you how you to think about these people you, you described earlier with, with maps in the world of their faces and I think how, how do you you know just as, as a normal person like you and I approach someone who has something so monumentous in their life uh, coincidentally one of the previous interviews uh, we did on, on this mm -hmm. uh, podcast was with a gentleman called Glenn Kurtz who, who wrote a book called three minutes in Poland and I know his work yeah 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 and he he's very similar also spoke with a lot of Holocaust survivors and I, th I think went through, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but went through a similar kind of period of being absolutely like humbled by the magnitude of the story that you're, I don't want to use the word facilitator because that kind of mm -hmm. diminishes the, the artistry of your work, but that you're kind of trying to capture or bear witness to. So with the Holocaust survivors, I, I find generally speaking with any of the subjects who I work with, uh, the project I just finished, I, I do lots of little things, but I usually have these sort of big arcing projects. The project that I just finished was on poets. And I would sit and I would talk with the poets, and more importantly, I would read all their work, see what they've put forth. The one that's following it that I'm ramping up right now is, is about humorists and comedians. It's the same thing. I'm having conversations with them. I'm reading their work. Some of them are stand-up guys. I, I watch their work. Uh, and about sort of learning about who they are. With the Holocaust folks, uh, what I would end up doing more often than not is I would I would sit with them and I would chat. And I had a my just because she just kind of was interested in doing it. I, I brought along my my best friend for for most of these, just come in and kind of give me a hand and hold lights. And what ended up happening is the shoot would take twenty minutes, but we'd end up sitting there for an hour or two talking with these people who 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 had stories to tell and just. It, a lot of times it was about just listening to what they had to tell. They've been living this life and living these memories for so long that they were often pretty comfortable telling them and, and, and recounting it. And I think also a lot of them, again, not to put words in their mouth, but I think a lot of them felt pretty comfortable with the, their role and the importance of their role in, in telling their stories and making sure that they remembered. I think the experience of doing, they weren't formal interviews, it wasn't what we're doing right now, where, where you and your listeners have to listen to me bloviate for a while, but it was, um, it was in some case, the, the interview process itself was tougher for me, maybe, than it was for them. They would tell the story, they've told it before, they lived it, they'd come to terms with it for the most part, but, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time would come would come over after these shoots and she'd find me literally sitting in my living room listening to Quesner music and crying because I had to sort of live this terrible story of these people who'd been children and had gone through these terrible things. All of the work, if you are, if you're telling stories about people, you have to try to understand the people you're telling stories about. Otherwise it's, you know, otherwise you're just a polemicist. Otherwise, you're just trying to implant yourself on on everyone else, and that's that's a natural inclination. All art everywhere is autobiographical to some extent, but sorry, but you can't. No, it's fine. But you 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 can't you can't forget that you are stewarding someone else's reputation uh, and. Uh, and experience, you, especially if you're an image maker. You know, I we're talking a lot about. Uh, so I started talking about about uh, the fact that I'm doing as part of the humorous and comedians, and I had a very interesting interaction with with one of the comedians who I'm photographing, a guy named Christian Finnegan. 
uh, really nice guy. I, I, I photographed him at his home uh, last week, and and he was very nervous because the concept that that we're doing for him, out of context, would would look really really uh, scandalous and maybe offensive to others. And I explained to him then I, I meant it that you know I, I always make a point that with people who are creators that I pair the work, the poets I have the poetry paired with the, the humorous I'm doing the same, because you need to understand the entire back you know, the backstory of what's going on in the image. Very few images, very, very few really truly stand on their own without some story to them. It's the truth of it. Um, you have to be careful when people entrust you with their lives and their stories and telling those stories you know, uh, in a responsible way. Because you, you write uh, very, very beautifully uh, in, in addition to taking, taking photography. And do, do you find the writing that you do often serves to provide context for your photographs, or, or do you write and photograph uh, different things? Um, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I write in a, with a very purple prose that, is not, uh, that does not always match the work that I create. I create images that, that are hopefully storytelling. But if you look at something like, uh, like Kosovo, uh, the story that I did for Interrupt Times, the the piece that I wrote and those photographs, they stand apart. Uh, the, for the most part, the piece that I wrote, the, the photographs don't help them, don't help the story along. And I don't necessarily think that the, the story helps the photographs along. The, the photographs are factual um, in a very sort of rigid way, whereas the, the, the written piece, well, also, every word of it factual is written in an editorial style that that is designed uh, to tell a larger story that you can't tell with you know one three hundred and fiftieth of a second. The I think that there are times when when prose um, and photography are necessary to one another, but I in a, in a truly an integral way. But I think more often than not, they're they're complementary. You know, I, you, you can count on one hand the number of photographs that really stick with you throughout your whole life of these sort of historical images where you go, oh, that stands on its own. It needs no explanation of any kind. Do you have a personal favorite uh, example of that, something that inspired you? Oh, boy, that's challenging. Um, Probably a million. Uh, Probably a million, yeah. I the I I went through when I was a young man a program called the Eddie Adams Workshop, uh, which is a I, I don't know if it's known outside of the American shores, but it's extremely influential uh, within American photojournalism. Uh, it's a they, basically a bunch of editors get together every year and they they pick a uh, hundred young photojournalists who they feel should go to this workshop and meet essentially all the greatest of greats who are are in photojournalism today. And that, that was the case then; it's the case now, and. I was picked uh, essentially a, a, as an error. I was too young. I was not. I was not good enough yet at all when I went. Uh, but the people who were teaching at the time were um, were folks who had had made these incredibly iconic images. Uh, it was Joe Rosenthal who made the picture of the flag being raised at Iwo Jima. Eddie Adams who did the picture uh, from the worship was named. Who did the picture of the fellow being shot in the head in Vietnam? Uh, and Nick Ut, who did the picture of the little girl running away from the napalm bombing, uh, also in Vietnam. I can and, picture all those images in my head there. They're iconic. And, and because they're iconic, and most importantly, they don't necessarily need the text. 
which is why they sort of live on. Knowing what's going on, in fact, actually in all three cases, perhaps actually diminishes what's going on in those, in those the, with with those particular photographs. But you know, the images that become truly iconic, the guy kissing. Uh, the the Sarah kissing the girl in Times Square on uh, VE Day, for instance, those kind of things where you don't need to know what's going on. You don't be told. You can you can read it immediately, or uh, those live on. But very few images from even the the, the greatest photographers who ever lived, people who are better than me on their worst day, um, can ever stand up to not having a little bit of explanation because whatever moment you meet someone in their life, the life that they led up to it. Is influential on the moment. These incredible uh, iconic moments, the, the, the examples that you gave of your uh, teachers and mentors, the, the flag at Iwo mm-hmm. Jima, do you think there's you know an element of right place in the right at the right time for that as well? Um, well actually so the, the Iwo Jima one is the worst example of it because it's, it's the worst kept secret in the world that was a staged photograph. I didn't know that. Um, okay. Yeah so actually so uh, I actually heard uh, you know what? I can't repeat it for the podcast. There's a, there's a wonderfully salacious, scandalous story that, that, that Joe Rosenthal, the guy who made the image, used to tell. And I'm sure that any of your listeners could Google it. Um, okay. Intriguing. Yeah. It's not my place to tell, but it's, it's, it's a fun story. Um, yes. I mean, most of the folks who have ever won a Pulitzer have, have, or for Spot News have done it because they're in the right place at the right time. Um, but the thing is that being a photojournalist, uh, is, which – and I don't know if a lot of photojournalists would still call me one in the traditional sense, but uh, I still consider myself one. The, I don't think that most photojournalists uh, would argue that the core of photojournalism is trying to be everywhere all the time. Uh, you, need to, you, you need to be constantly present. If you're not there, you're not going to get the image. And so part of, that, part of that is just absolutely totally dumb luck. And part of it is just constantly striving to, to keep moving and do everything. Okay, and speaking of keeping on moving, let's uh, end with what do you think you're planning on next? Now, you mentioned uh, you're off to teach a course in Mongolia. Yeah, I'm teaching a thing for Atlas Obscura, and actually, I think I said one week before, I'm actually leaving in two weeks. I'm super pumped for it, actually. So the people at Atlas Obscura said, uh, hey, uh, would you be interested in teaching a photo workshop in Mongolia? It's a little more complicated than that, but you know, just, I'll save your listeners their time. And, uh, and I'm taking 12 people to a thing called the Golden Eagle Festival on the steppes of Mongolia. I've actually never been to Mongolia. I don't speak Mongolian. I'm actually pretty excited about it because, you know, again, it goes back to what we are saying before where, you know, everyone you meet is something to teach you. Everywhere you go is something to teach you. Well, I'm going a place that's totally strange to me with 12 people who are totally strange to me. So I'm hoping I'm going to learn something while I'm teaching. Uh, I'm ramping up a bunch of big projects right now. I, I'm going to be doing a similar thing with, with comedians and humorists. Uh, which I, I literally just started ramping it up. I, I, I've only shot, I think, five of them now, and it's going to be 80 to 100, probably close to 100. Uh, people who are notable humorists, and I've got a bunch of other sort of experimental products that I've got going on in addition to the usual thing of, you know, gallivanting around Kosovo for the intrepid times. Well, in, in the midst of all that, I'm really appreciative that you've taken the time out to speak to us. Hey, hey, listen, you liberated me from an otherwise boring morning, I assure you. That is that. Thank you very much for listening, and you can always find more on intrepidtimes.com. This was Nathan Thomas. See you next time.